Excuse me, everyone, I have a brief announcement to make. Jesus was black, Ronald Reagan was the devil, and the government is lying about 9-11. Thank you for your time, and good night. Having that dream where you made the white people riot, weren't you? But I was telling the truth. How many times have I told you you better not even dream about telling white folk the truth? You understand me? Shoot. Making white people riot. You better learn how to lie like me. I'm going to find me a white man and lie to him right now. I am the stone that the builder refused. I am the visual, the inspiration that made ladies sing the blues. I'm the spark that makes your idea bright. The same spark that lights the dark so that you can know your left from your right. I am the ballad in your box, the bullet in the gun, the inner glow that lets you know to call your brother son. The story that just begun, the promise of what's to come. And I will remain a soldier till the war is won. All right, well, hi, everybody. We're back here. And um, today we're going to be talking about the current situation and the current circumstances in Colombia. Obviously, if some of you have been paying attention, there has been a social movement that, uh, that has sparked throughout the country in places like Cali, Bogota, Medellin, and others. And in response, the police have uh, responded, other police have uh, responded to many social movements with, uh, with repression and uh, other forms of violence, including uh, the disappearances of many people. So today we'll be talking to someone from the Red Condor Collective, um, and uh, we're, we're going to let them introduce themselves, um, however they want to introduce themselves, and um, and also their organization, what their what the goals of the organization are, and um, and uh, you can take it away. Hey Alejandro, thanks. Uh, yeah, my name is Juanes uh, from the Red Condor Collective, and uh, we started uh, last year, May second of twenty twenty. Uh, around by like a dozen Colombian different activists uh, just in the diaspora uh, across from the UK to the US. And, you know, first, I guess it's important to recognize that like our diaspora has been spread pretty thin uh, globally due to just like the social conditions in our country. And it was a lot of like the motivating factor as to why we thought we should have um, our collective as a way to support the people back home. And so it was kind of out of a sister organization with Anticonquista, which is this other uh, decolonial media project that we formed. Great, and uh, thank you for, for introducing the Red Condor Collective, and uh, we'll be plugging them more, um, throughout the podcast uh, so more people can go on uh, on their podcast on Spotify and, and learn more about it as well. Um, yeah, um, I can... Uh, so. I can elaborate a little bit. So we have our Instagram page, the Red Condor Collective, but we also have our uh, website, the diasporatribune.com, um, which also has its own Twitter page where we put out regular news pieces about what's happening in Colombia and analysis as well. And, and then we also have our podcast, the Red Condor Hour, uh, where we're, uh, it's semi-new. We started back in February, but we bring people on and interview them for different topics and really trying to emphasize this lens of land justice, indigeneity, um, agrarian reform, reparations for Afro-Colombians and so forth. And mm-hmm. so we've been diving into that. And 
our project in general as the Red Condor Collective, we have this, um, the goal or the aim is to really provide material and non-material support for the communist movement and just general like activists in Colombia. Before the April 28th strike, we had raised about like 10,000 funds for different campaigns, um, whether it was whether it was to support like an economically unstable Afro-Colombian lender Renteria, um, and from the Buenaventura struggle, or also just um, you know fighting for the legal rights and raising money for the legal uh, like I guess like I don't know legal defense for Colombian protesters last year in the September 9th wave of police repression and protests. So we've been really just trying to provide support. And since the April 28th strike that happened, uh, you know, now 11 days ago, mm-hmm. it's been, uh, we've collected $44,000 uh, US dollars in support of people on the ground. And uh, yeah, we're really I guess, excited and like proud of the way that our diaspora is really trying to show up to support people. Um, They're really understanding the gravity of how people are being murdered by the state and trying to advocate and provide support that the way, the ways that they can. And so, yeah, we're really just like thankful for all the people that have donated. We, we have a list of groups that we, uh, that we're sharing that like we're donating to and, you know, also, with GoFundMe, you know, we've signed like these like anti-perjury um, like things to show that, you know, we're not um, at all profiting from these funds. These are being shared with people on the ground that provide medical aid for when people are facing serious injury that are providing legal defense that are that's trying to provide food for some of the autonomous groups that are forming on the ground right now. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Again, just expressing our thanks and showing where we're, where our money is going right now. Yeah. No. And, and in terms of like where we, where we're coming from, coming from, I guess the quote unquote first world or heart of an empire, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, many of us, we weren't. No one signed up to be born here, necessarily, right? Um, many many of us coming from Latin America. Um, a lot of it has to do with displacements. A lot of it has to do with mm-hmm. the, the lack of accessible jobs. So no, I mean, I mean, I'm happy hearing this because like um, in this practice of like decolonization. Um, it's kind of silly to think uh, this sort of like big rebellion is going to come from the the quote unquote first world. Whereas like, I guess if we study Latin American history, we see like Latin Americans, um, Africans, Southeast Asians um, mobilizing for, for, for what's theirs. Right. Um, and yeah, um, for sovereignty. Yeah, exa- exactly. Because things have been set up a certain way, but um, like, did you, do you want to expand on like the diaspora element? Like, is it hard finding other Colombians to organize with like um, where you're at or like, how does, um, how, how do you all kind of like internetwork? Like if you do want to talk about that and like, especially um, in the U S from like the U S to Colombia. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We can, I can elaborate a little bit. Uh, so first of all, it's export. It's important to understand that there's so many of us that have been displaced out of our country, whether immediately from violence or just because, like the social mobility in our country has been so stripped by like the hands of like, you know, global interests on our natural resources. And so Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's over 8 million people that are displaced um, outside of the country, uh, including a million in the U S alone. And then 
uh, 6 million people that are internally displaced. People have been, that have been kicked out of their campesinos, their farmlands, and forced into either prisons or into the cities to live in poverty. You know, so it really does make uh, like stable housing and like being connected to a land like consistently, like pretty, a really hard obstacle, you know, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of the diaspora have like experienced that immediately too. Um, I was born in Medellin, but uh, who knows how many times I've moved um, kind of like throughout the States growing up, uh, just you know, kind of like in that brunt of moving into a country and not having economic stability. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, my own experience kind of like attesting to that sense of displacement and um, lack of connection to like a family home or anything. Um, but as for how that plays into our organizing and how we built, uh, how we've been built up, um, it's, we kind of get, we did get to start on like a good foot. Um, there were, um, there was like a bit of like a focus on Anticonquista. There were like some, like specifically Colombian people, a part of the team that really wanted to build this collective out. And mm -hmm. so, uh, it was with them and just, um, uh, putting out a call for like other Colombians that have, uh, we've had a lot of people kind of come and go work, work with the project right for us, but like, um, you know, people have varying capacities and different jobs and like, we're all, you know, participating in this as like volunteers, but, mm -hmm. uh, we found like really like great consistent people that are actively contributing and really, uh, I think we're all like continually seeing like the power and like the, the, the benefit and what we're able to do as a group, um, from, outside of Colombia. And so, uh, I think it's just been through a lot of our personal networks have been flexed too. I know I've gotten to, uh, kind of loop in some of my Colombian friends that I've met here and just, you know, struggle and, uh, movement work into the project too, which always feels like, you know, it's great to see, uh, the Red Condor Collective continue to grow. And, um, and a lot of, I think for as, uh, Urivista for as liberal that the Colombian diaspora can be. There are also a lot of people that are really, um, I guess, like enamored by the idea of social change and know that it's, um, mm -hmm. we have like a, a shared responsibility for like trying to make that change happen. So, uh, you know, we're really thankful for those people. Oh, yeah. And in terms of the situation in Colombia today, I mean, I understand it's it's stressful and I understand it's, it's emotional, especially with, um, with ties to the people, ties to the land. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I know I know we can talk about it for, for hours in terms of like legacies of colonialism, but in terms of like introducing the the listener of the podcast today um, or, or wherever wherever they're coming from, like how would you um, synthesize um, what's going on right now in terms of social movement, in terms of um, police repression? How do you introduce people to it and how, like, um, just to make people aware of the current situation in Colombia? Sure, yeah. Uh, we can start with the current situation, mm -hmm. um, all of which is like emanating from the April 28th strike, El Paro, that happened. And the way that it has continued, um, even past certain, like, you know, quote unquote wins, because uh, El Paro no para, it doesn't stop. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the strike was originally formed because of a tax reform bill that Duque, um, our president, um, had or had, like was trying to pass, uh, which was going to raise um, the the taxes that the working and middle class pay to 19 percent. 
Um, and that was going to be 19%, like a raise of 19% on services, you know, that are essential, like water, electricity, and also on goods like meat, eggs, gasoline, internet, um, et cetera, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And I think it was May 3rd that uh, they said that, you know, that they were going to rewrite this tax, this tax reform, but there's also other reforms that they were trying to pass, like on the health system, the health system they're currently trying to privatize and very much like model it in the way that the U.S. has privatized their healthcare and mm -hmm. have now this like really big reliance on insurance premiums and uh, really revoking people's access to public healthcare. Uh, so there's current reforms that are like along those lines and also reforms that uh, are going to challenge people's access to their pension and retirement and have them taxed at higher rates. Um, so really putting like the brunt of Colombia's global debt and uh, corruption onto the working and middle class. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. people have been mobilizing, you know, really out of like frustration with that over the last uh, like 11 days now. And um, if you wanted to expand on, on that aspect of um, international debt, like um, I think a lot of listeners, maybe they'd, uh, it'd be useful to learn about maybe the International Monetary Fund or, or the World Bank and like what that does to Colombia because in situations like Jamaica um, that have also experienced like um, like a, a, ma a massive debt that the the World Bank has pressured them to like cut off social social services similar to Mexico in the 80s similar to Brazil in the in the 80s as well. Do you want to expand on like how the IMF how how just sort of neoliberalism has led to Colom has led to where Colombia is now in terms of policing in terms of repression in terms of how people are organizing on the ground. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so maybe first to start is on this debt piece. Um, I, I brought that up because Duque, Duque had mentioned that, like, you know, because of the economic instability that was brought on by the COVID-19 crisis, that now that was kind of like one of the leading factors for why this tax reform bill was being formed um, mm -hmm. as a way to kind of trying to recover from this, uh, I guess, a bit of like a recession, economic recession after the pandemic, even though you know, the pandemic is still actively going on. Um, crazy enough, like, you know, today's Mother's Day and I call my great grandma and mm -hmm. just found out that they're currently, uh, a few of them got COVID. Um, and so, it, you know, and for so long, for a, a long portion of time, you know, we, we've been had access to the vaccine here in the States and, yeah. Uh, it just feels really tangible, like just the way that um, the first world continues to really strip like access um, to vaccinations and money and resources to uh, to the people, you know, in the third world and Colombia. Mm -hmm. So um, on this debt, though, or I guess uh, let's look at neoliberalized uh, neoliberalism, the way that it's grown. Um, it definitely began to escalate in the 90s in Colombia, um, mm -hmm. where the Colombian economy began to, you know, literally abandon people. Um, there were um, hardened penal policies. There were multiple new offenses in the penal code, and it also like escalated the penalties for like minor infringements on the poorest populations of Colombia, uh, which has very large sections of um, Afro-descendant and indigenous people, and so it put all of those, these like new stressors to continue to abandon and like criminalize them. And, um, from, well, and then 
once we add Plan Colombia onto that, that was kind of like uh, the U.S.'s attempt to accelerate neoliberalism down there. Uh, there's a lot of like global uh, global interest in Colombia as as a stepping stone um, into Latin America, and also maybe as a as a metaphor that might be helpful to some. It's also referred to as like the Israel of Latin America for the way that it's being used to kind of invade and step into um, Latin America as a whole, and for you know Southcom and stuff like that. The uh, U.S. military plan to continue to kind of maintain a control over. Uh, South America. And so anyway, with Plan Colombia, some of the um, big sectors of it were, you know, quote unquote, to prevent drug trafficking and uh, to prevent like, you know, the violence from the armed conflict. But really the solutions that they offered and they funded were just the growth of policing and the and the carceral landscape in Colombia. Uh, for some examples, you know, after Plan Colombia, we saw the implementation of ESMAD, which is like the SWAT equivalent um, in Colombia, which uses like these legacies of counterinsurgent and like urban guerrilla fighting um, and brought it into the city to then be able to enact like, you know, the harm, the, the very like violent repression that we see now that, we, that we're currently seeing in Colombia, but also that we saw here in the States last year during the George Floyd uprising with the use of rubber bullets and tear gas. Um, and in Colombia, you know, they, the, um, the police know that they can move with more impunity. And so they even use live arms, um, like balas, like uh, guns, you know, live, live guns um, to shoot and kill people that are protesting. And so with Plan Colombia, you, you know, we got this implementation of ESMAD, but we also saw the arrival of like the U.S. prison model into Colombia, where um, not only like, you know, were people being displaced by violence, but to as they were being abandoned um, and we saw like the degradation of different social projects like, uh, you know, the minimum wage and other things that would protect their labor. Otherwise, uh, we instead saw the, like, for example, the Colombian prison population increase fourfold. Um, from 94, from when I kind of mentioned that neoliberalism started to really get a grasp on Colombian politics to 2013, um, it increased fourfold from 29K people in prison to 120,000, which is a gigantic boom. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. in, ter in terms of, um, like, here we're learning a lot about um, U.S. involvement, imperialist involvement in, uh, in Colombia. But um, I'm I'm curious how, how is the how is the left mobilizing um, throughout Colombia whether whether that be today or whether it, that be throughout Colombian history because there there seems to be um, the, the Colombian state as well as the U.S. imperialists have the idea that there's drugs coming out of Bogota there's drugs coming out of Cali so like can you can you expand on like the role of like this sort of idea that that Colombia is a narco state similar to Mexico and, or can you, and can you identify like, how is the left mobilizing to counter some of the shit that the right is, is doing, you know, because I mean, there, there's U S involvement, there's sort of a fascist mobilizing throughout um, Colombia as well. So how, how is the left responding to, to these issues? Um, and uh, if you, if you want to expand on that. Sure. Uh, yeah. I'll start with how, uh, what like the left general left or like just 
um, popular response has been, and then I'll get into um, narco trafficking. And so, um, yeah, just generally popular, different popular fronts, uh, you know, from Quibdo, from Buenaventura to Bogota, like from all across the country, people have been um, advocating for like sovereignty and autonomy, trying to, you know, and against corruption, um, definitely very large lines against corruption because um, people know that the politicians in Colombia often very much get to profit by selling, by being sellouts, by selling out the country and its natural resources to, uh, to global interests, to people that are profit, uh, to people that profit and to a very select few hands that continue to accumulate wealth in Colombia. Uh, and then all the multinationals that get to profit off of our land. And so people have been, have always advocated and tried to form uh, different forms of like labor rights, different unions, and then, and then in turn, you know, face a lot of uh, violence and, uh, and just like union busting uh, nonsense in response to their organizi- organizing. Uh, and there's, there's so many examples <laughs> to come across, but I think the one that um, has been really standing out most to me lately would be, uh, for example, looking at La Minga, and organizations like CRIC, which is the uh, count, the regional council of um, indigenous, um, what is the word? <laughs> El, yeah, well, I, I kind of familiar with it. Like they you know, kind of like work with like the NASA, like kind of operate out of like a larger indigenous coalition, essentially. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sorry, I'm just like struggling to <laughs> um, translate acronyms, but it's like no, the no. regional indigenous council of Cauca. Um, no. And um, they, you know, they have been really forming like this political line about the fact that we need to resume um, a sense of work that is communal, that we need to stop working for, uh, you know, national corporations. And we need to have ways that uh, we can sustainably be pursuing like agrarian reform and where we're no longer producing, you know, cash crops. We're no, we don't longer have our eyes on like sugar and coffee and bananas, but instead... Uh, we're growing the food to be autonomous and have uh, the opportunity to feed ourselves and to be able to, you know, maintain, have a self-sustaining uh, economy. Because uh, right now our economy is completely just oriented towards global interests and people that want our natural resources. Mm-hmm. So, and, and oh, go how, ahead. And how strong is the sort of, um, I don't want to say indigenous movement to make it monolithic, but how strong is the sort of like a militant left uh, indigenous movement in Colombia, even a black, a black uh, movement in Colombia, if we think about the number of, um, of Afro, Afro-Colombians who, uh, who live in Colombia um, as well. And um, if you, like, does that, how, how does the state negotiate with them? Is repression targeted to, to their movements specifically? Or um, or are they sort of ignored by the state? Are they kind of kept out of things? Maybe um, similar to to other other circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it definitely the struggle, the Afro and Indigenous struggles in Colombia are mostly just ignored and repressed, um, especially in internal media, but also in the Western different forms of Western media. They don't get reported, and that's a bit of the gap that us at the Red Condor Collective try to fill and in terms of really, you know, providing some eyes and support for people like in Buenaventura, for example. And I think something that's a bit emblematic of like how 
uh, strong and important the Afro struggle is in Colombia is the fact, as you know, it's just what ha what's happening in Cali right now. Uh, since the strike, 47 people have been assassinated in, uh, assassinated by police and other, um, you know, forms of like paramilitary and just like extrajudicial violence. But 75% of those have happened in Cali. And Cali is like the largest city in Colombia with a concentration of Afro-descendant people, uh, which which we can't ignore. Like the reason there there's like this big concentration in Cali is because of paramilitary violence. Mm -hmm. um, paramilitaries are like allowed to control certain regions. They are often in collaboration with a lot of different officers and military uh, personnel in Colombia. And they get to therefore really assume control in areas that are ignored by the state, which mm -hmm. is really often like the Pacific coast. Uh, where a lot of our, where the majority are of, of our Afro-descendant people are. And, um, and could you expand on, um, on like what a paramilitary represents or just like how they operate? Because I think a lot of people in the U.S. are kind of like unfamiliar with it, even though we're seeing a rise of paramilitary groups, especially right-wing paramilitary groups mm -hmm. in the United States. But can you kind of like introduce um, our listeners to uh, what a paramil what paramilitary groups do, like, where they stem out of, um, how they contract with businessmen and, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, most definitely. Um, this is going to be a bit <laughs> of a lengthy answer because there's so much to say. Um, okay. but par paramilitarism in Colombia really started in the sixties in, re in response to the formulation of groups like El FARC, um, where it was literally out of like us, um, I guess, encouragement and advisement, um, like the U S Colonel, I think his name is Lansdale, and other U.S. officials that were saying like, you know, hey, we, uh, you need to like repress your left movement uh, that's currently militarizing. And so you need to find ways outside of your national army to, you know, violently attack them. And uh, so there became like this kind of like insertion of a lot of the uh, same arms that were used at the same time in the 60s, you know, in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. And all those all those arms were also the same ones that were using Colombia and given to the Colombian military to use um, to use against our like, you know, militarized people. And um, I guess to then elaborate or I guess the line that I really want the listeners to understand is that um the lines are extremely blurry and inexistent between the Colombian military police and the paramilitary groups. You know, there are very often people that are just completely in both organizations and operate within both of them, but they, um, but also for those that are not in immediate collaboration, you know, they're often bought off and get to profit from the paramilitary money, uh, to promote work with support, uh, support their their acts of violence uh some of these examples just to really be like specific with y'all is that uh paramilitary groups often you know like communicate via radios with Colombian military and police they use uh telephones beeper beepers the sharing of intelligence and names um to try to like identify guerrilla collaborators um they often like share like you know different processes and they'll like collab on like a raid for example and the uh the state is so enabling of them that like often you know the most 
that they're regañados, the, the most that they're like scolded is just for leaving bodies on the street instead of like this disappearing them. Um, and it's, it's pretty hard to quantify um, the amount of violence that we really experience at the hands of paramilitary groups. I wish I had some stats for y'all right now, but um, even then the stats that do exist are just very, it's, it's very hard to understand, you know, who was disappeared and who was a victim of paramilitary violence because um, paramilitary groups get to move with such impunity that like, if they even just suspect or think that someone's aligned with a guerrilla group, that they will kill them blindly and, and murder their family, threaten their family and, um, or push them towards like, uh, abandoned, uh, expulsion from their communities, um, forcing them to kind of recede into like different like forms of jungle life and stuff. And so paramilitary groups are just extremely repressive and a way that the Colombian government can, you know, have like this extra judicial, um, armed force throughout Colombia. Yeah. Yeah. And like, just for the listener, whether they're listening here in the United States, um, I think a lot of times it's hard to think of what the fuck a paramilitary group is, but I, I guess an example we can give from the United States is essentially KKK. And like, um, like there is no coincidence that like these fucking lyrics by Rage Against the Machine say like, you know, the same people who work forces are the same people who, work cro- who um, burn crosses. Like there's this element that like they're separate from the state but at the same time, they're still serving some type of state interest, all right? Like, there's still um, police who operate o- operate as these, quote-unquote, paramilitary groups. And in terms of, like, where these guns are coming from, the U.S. has to look at itself a lot, too, because these arms are coming from U.S. programs, right? And this is beyond Colombia. This is, this is in Afghanistan. This is in Syria. This is in Guatemala, which caused a large genocide of indigenous people there as well. So I think uh, just for the listener to kind of give like some context, like, uh, um, but I, I think your, de- your definition is perfect. And um, mm-hmm. I do want to add just a little bit more because uh, it's not just the U.S. It's also the way that the U.K. Um, mm-hmm. as an, a, another like large, I guess, um, think, tank, think tank for like the Western global yeah. interests or like hub for it. Um, for example, Israel, right? Yeah. You know, all of these. Uh, and and yeah, and, and then we look at the way that UK was one of the main like in, uh, investors and like helped enact NAPCA and invade Palestine um, mm-hmm. for the for the creation of Israel. You know, so it's all these connections. But I wanted to point towards uh, a recent report that was put out by the Canary UK on the UK's College of Policing, where they showed that over like the last few decades, um, they were actively training uh uh, officers in Colombia on like counterinsurgent uh, practices, quote unquote, and uh, you know, real and realistically, you know, they did this, and also in the military to, they did this to continue to protect their global interests, particularly in petroleum, you know. And I, I wanted to dive into like this like connection with paramilitary in the UK a mm-hmm. bit uh, with this example of terror that happened. Um, but uh, like on behalf of the company called Osensa. Osensa is like a uh, like Colombian like petrol company that uh, British Petroleum BP is like a shareholder of. Mm-hmm. And between 85 and between 1985 and 2015, over 3,000 union activists were murdered and additional 6,000 people were disappeared in the Casanare uh, region where Osensa was operating. You know, and BP was sending over 2.0 million a year um, in a three-year agreement with the Colombian defense to 
create like armies and you know fund weapons to explicitly just like defend these oil rigs because often a goal and like a line of different left guerrilla groups in Colombia have been to you know interrupt these lines of profit and so to try to like you know destroy these uh, rigs and and you know obstruct ports and um, you know just try to preserve the natural resources of Colombia and make sure that they're being used for Colombia and not for global interests and so we can really look at that like relationship between BP and paramilitary groups and the terror that was happening for like two decades in um, Casanare as like an example of the way that paramilitaries profit from um, um, like multinational corporations and their interests and are the armed force for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of examples. There's also the way that um, Mm Coca-Cola like hired paramilitary groups in the eighties to kill union leaders in some of their factories throughout Colombia. And I don't know, the examples go, go on and on, but Mm -hmm. uh, paramilitary groups exist to really preserve uh, the, the, capitalist like grasp on our natural resources and labor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and it, it kind of gives context to why a group like the like the FARC like the like the ELN why guerrilla organizations in Latin America and in other places throughout the third world have mobilized right like I think a lot of times they're seen as this sort of like boogeyman but like in, in, with this context that you're giving like of like what Coca-Cola is doing what BP oil is doing what other international groups are doing. It, it, like, like sometimes we got to say shit, like make it make sense. But like, th- mm-hmm. th- this is what like, like what y- y'all's platform is doing in, ter- in terms of like providing a light in terms uh, of like indigenous and black uh, Colombian movements and because it's being ignored by the like, popular media. media. But, um, but no, if I think th- those, those are excellent examples. Uh, and in terms of, like how do paramilitary groups influence um, today's today's mobilizations, whether that be in Cali or in Bogota? Um, so that I think, you know, it's also a bit hard to grasp. But just um, as I said before, like the lines between paramilitary and police and mm-hmm. ESMAD and the Colombian military, you know, those uh, those lines are so thin that you know it's kind of. Uh, a bit impossible to really grasp like the level of which paramilitary groups are um, really present. Also, you know, they are formally considered illegal as of, I think like um, 80, 1989 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did get to operate legally um, different paramilitary groups for around 20 years, but um, they have since, you know, continued their like illegal operations. And so uh, yeah. And also like the state, is not going to immediately like quantify, you know, the amount of their military members that have been proven to have been a part of like different paramilitary groups and something that, you know, it's going to try to protect itself in the way that it's seen. Um, Especially in this line of like trying to paint all victims of the armed conflict as victims of guerrilla, of guerrilla groups and not paramilitaries. You know, they try to say, oh, the guerrilla, these guerrilla leaders are terrorists and that they're the people who, you know, who are killing and kidnapping. But um, the armed conflict is a lot more complex than that. And they continue to try to erase those lines of like what, what the paramilitaries are responsible for. And so, you know, we have to kind of keep that 
um, obscure, obs- <laughs> I can't even think of the word, obfuscation, you know, like the blurringness. Um, yeah. <laughs> we have to keep that blurringness in mind. And, and in terms of like, um, like what's, what's going on in Colombia today, like, um, what do you, what do you think comes out of this? Like, are you surprised by this? Um, like in, in terms of like the, the amount of repression, but like, what, what do you think is the, is the outcome at the end? And I, I know it's a hard ass question, but like, and you can take your time answering it, but like, um, in terms of like Colombian history and like the patterns you see, like, um, like, is there some sort of, uh, like, does it become co-opted by the state? Do, um, do, do things become more localized? Because I, I see protests, the way people are protesting, are pro- they're protesting in a more localized fashion in Colombia today. So um, if you can expand on like where, where this goes. Sure. Um, so first on co-optation, uh, yeah, I've, there are definitely really large liberal lines with Colombia that, you know, is trying to argue. I've been a bit annoyed with them too, because they, they keep just trying to argue like, you know, um, people are protesting just about the presidency, even though that's not true. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. about how oppressive yeah. the state is, but they try to belittle the the protest into just being about pre- presidential elections. And then um, they say like, you know, and we, what about like all the congressional seats and we need to be focusing on them and be present at these elections and like kind of trying to belittle and uh, again, like infantilize, like what the movement is really about, which is a, about sovereignty, autonomy, and like having um, the ability to like live like unrepressed uh, lives, you know? And uh, so there's definitely a lot of lines of like that are trying to kind of regularly, um, what was the word that you use? Um, co-opt, yeah, you know, co-opt the movement. And as for how people are responding and like what response can continue to look like, you know, I think we can continue to have our eyes on groups like La Minga, El Creek, um, and also just like uh, different autonomous, like unnamed groups. Um, a really, I think, beautiful example. We have a video up on it uh, on our Instagram. Uh, but there's this like youth-led group in Porta El Mar, uh, El Mar uh, in Cali, uh, where it's a uh, like kind of, uh, it's blo- I think blockade is the word for like how they're restricting and kind of opening up like a walls around their community and um, making sure that, you know, they're not getting the same kind of drive-by shooting and violence and unmarked cars that have been perpetuating violence. And they're like, you know, holding tolls without collecting funds, but they're holding tolls to try to make sure that, you know, they're not going to continue, they're not going to experience the same violence that's happening all throughout other regions of Cali. And they're one of the few regions to have not had any deaths. Mm -hmm. And so you know, it really shows that like they're there to um, set up their own way of like community defense and also community nurturance because they're hosting, you know, f- uh, like, yeah, communal uh, com- communal dinners and like cultural activities and forms of like community building that are trying to heal and make sure that people are nurtured through this movement, you know, so um, I think if we look at examples like that, the, you know, it's, it really shows the beauty of what can like happen when people are in arms and they had, they had a really like beautiful quote. Um, it was like something along the lines of like, you know, 
cualquier or organización popular um, va a ganar contra el Estado or like any like popular organization will win against the state because like it's mm -hmm. with the people it's with popular fronts that we win you know mm -hmm. and so we have to look along those lines and then uh, there was another part of your question I'm trying to remember um, I, I think I think the, the, the other part of the question was kind of like sorry if it's a bad question but it's kind of like where does it go from here but like I think you're kind of foreshadowing like it can go to a more like local communal like practice where like a lot of people can learn from not just Colombians like a lot of people can be benefiting but if you wanted to go on that like where you think it might go from here uh yeah hope you know hopefully the direction continues to be set towards you know uh the uh the building of like popular power in Colombia and like our ability to like kind of change um these structural and like the the state's the state structure and the way that it oppresses us and it's just oriented towards global interests you know and so um i don't know I, it's also like your kind of questions bringing up for me like these like lines of like how vandalism is being a bit like um not being a bit but it's being criminalized and like also like uh demonized in our country but people do not a lot of people especially along like liberal lines are like not understanding that vandalism and the burning of police precincts and the changing of like the policing landscape in Colombia is important for us to progress that we need to eliminate the way that the state is actively killing us for us to be able to you know resume and maintain make it sustainable that we maintain our popular power because otherwise we're just going to face another wave of repression and social leaders will continue to get killed um just today uh we found out that um we had like our 60th social leader murdered um of this year um her name uh escribió i had it written down um uh here we go yeah she um beatriz moreno mosquera mosquera um she lived uh on the pacific coast and was one of like the union leaders for for workers of education and she had like a long legacy of working for uh just like teaching teachers rights and education of afro-colombian people um and she was found murdered with signs of having been tortured in colombia you know and we need to kind of recognize like the way that the state is responsible for for that violence and how we can prevent it from continuing to happen um yeah and um i know i mean as someone who studies who's latin american history i mean obviously like there is some like benefit to me saying like yeah everybody like let's let's look beyond the u.s right but like What I, what I really appreciate about this interview and about this discussion is that you really um, bring in a lot of like themes that are common throughout Latin America. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, it's, it's extremely unfortunate and it's very, very depressing. But it's also, I think you're also reminding people that there's a broader story beyond the U.S., you know, it's, especially when we think about political struggle, when we think about the violence of police. And uh, you look at cases in like Colombia, Mexico, uh, Chile, Brazil. Or Brazil, Brazil. Yeah. Right now, they had um, there was a police raid that like killed twenty yeah. five people in a favela, um, yeah. making it one of like the most like lethal. Like it's just alongside Colombia for one of the more legal like assassinations by the state uh, or yeah. massacres by the state in this year. 
and and you bring something up that's that's super critical is is how do we prevent this you know and um and that and and that's the big question obviously like we all we all want to answer but like there are some available answers right there are kind of like these communal practices there are like organizations to be militant to be to be prepared but also to be aware that the right is a super violent fascist like I don't know, group of fuckheads that are armed. And like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and this is, this is necessary to think about whether you be in the U S and you think that gun laws are going to protect you. Um, there are organizations forming here. And, uh, but, but no, I mean, if I think, uh, I, I don't know, I'm kind of running out of questions, but this is a really good <laughs> discussion, but I, yeah. I sort of like wonder, like, what more do you want people to take away? Um, I think we, uh, should look at the way that we look at crime in general. I, I think I'm a bit biased in my uh, perspective on like abolition and what it means to uh, dismantle policing internationally. But um, I know that if we were to look at poverty uh, as poverty as a causative factor for crime and try to actually resolve poverty and oppression and look towards forms of community sustenance, mutual aid instead that we would then, you know, be resolving cr- the crime that happens if we, you know, built uh, movements that were relational and where we were in deep relation with the people that we lived around and the way that we produce food and the way that we then def- uh, defend ourselves, you know, we would be, uh, we would have like more sustainable movements and we would be less, um, I guess, like susceptible to the hands of capitalists and like, and the those who really focus on accumulating their wealth, you know, and an example that we can actively try to build towards that right now is uh, some of the mutual aid lists that we're collecting and that we're um, like, I can give you this link to one of our documents, but we've been in conversation with a bunch of different groups. um, Some of which we are given money to, but so many Mm -hmm. others of people that are just, you know, trying to build funds to, you know, start community fridges, create LGBT resources and place for like unhoused uh, queer people in Atlanta, I'm sorry, (laughs) Atlanta in Colombia and, uh, you know, there's a lot of different forms of mutual aid that are trying to pop up as people are trying to support themselves in Colombia. So uh, you can help these projects really start off by donating to them or donating to our group. And we are sharing group, um, like, you know, that money with groups. And also, I guess, looking towards hmm, a quick pause. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, don't, I don't know where else to go. No, like um, I'm I'm gonna follow up with another question. Then. Um, I, I want to ask um, and this is one of my biases too. I come from like an internationalist angle too. But what is the what is the significance of like participating in a solidarity effort outside of the U.S.? Like what like what role does internationalism play in the political struggle that is that that you're interested in? And um, I guess. To like for you personally, like what does being like inter- internationalist mean? Like what does um, what does what performing or like what does giving solidarity to a place outside of the country that you're currently in mean? And like what role is it going to play in the broader struggle of whatever the whatever the fuck we're trying to do here? Mm-hmm. Well, to be you know internationalist is to just have a you know a very like practical understanding of how our opposition is organized. You know, they are organized internationally and are actively always collaborating on forms, on their forms of repression, you know, and 
I think a, a really good example of that is just like the connection between Colombia and Palestine, for example, where mm-hmm. in both of these colonial projects of Israel and Colombia, you know, the U.S. is injecting money to extract like a, a like a military. How do you say it? Like it's b- both places are very like um beneficial toward their military positioning in these regions and Mm -hmm. so they inject a lot of their money and weapons and helicopters and tear gas uh, other forms of state repression to continue to maintain the grasp on both of these locations and so just as people are facing displacement in throughout the pacific coast um and like the afro-colombians in colombia like you know it's the same way that uh, right now, Israeli settlers are trying to claim more house and evict people from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah uh, in Palestine uh, and like occupied Jerusalem. You know, so it's really understanding the the shared oppressor in all of these scenarios. And also, um, I don't know, there's just like a level of like, you know, being informed and like, uh, like being honest with how um, the wealth is really being accumulated in such few hands that, you know, they're, it's, in, it's global, it's international. And so we ourselves need to also assume those forms and know, know our enemy really, really well mm-hmm. yeah. and, and stand with those that are, you know, facing similar things and strategize with them and form, you know, um, relationships that are like, you know, we can continue to exchange tap- tactics and ways of mobilizing and um, protesting. Something, something that's been actually really beautiful to see is like, I've seen, now in these wave of protests in Colombia, I'm seeing a lot of like the same graphics that were used during the George Floyd uprising, teaching people how to uh, protest and like stand up, um, being translated into Spanish and being like really like shared uh, pretty successfully throughout like Colombian people everywhere. Um, I see like they, they're like having like this like form of cop watch and recording that like, you know, they're all documenting dates very consistently. They're all like really like, uh, they're informed, but the protests are being extremely informed and they're really building a politic on like how to um, contest like police repression. And, and we're, we're all learning this like internationally together. And like, we're all, we're only getting stronger, you know? So it's, that's the point of like solidarity marches. Yeah, no, I I, I appreciate that explanation. And um... on the solidarity March line, uh, we also have a document um, on the red condor page, but I, um, oh, we might have removed it, but I'm going to send you the link and maybe you can put in the show notes where we have uh, the Right Conduct Collective kind of put together a list of demands, some af- some active statistics that, we're, that we've been updating and uh, kind of like a bit of a survey of what's happened in Colombia o- along with a list of chants so that people can host their own solidarity marches um, internationally. And then, and and then, when we think about like the situation of like awareness, like this is necessary, like um, these solidarity efforts. And um, I just want to plug in the Rithkonder Collective again. If you want to um, stay uh, or just kind of like announce the Instagram page again and the website, like where people could get more information. And um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I guess one one little history thing too is where uh, people interested in Colombia is just go look at how like the country of Panama was formed. And then maybe they can get a little more context to like how long the U.S. has really been there. But um, but yeah, you mm-hmm. can take it away. 
Yeah, um, I think just on like this line of like Panama, um, I, I guess I'm going to just point y'all's listeners to uh, the Red Condor Hour. We, we do dive a bit into like, you know, the original plan for Colombia, like El Gran Colombia by, you know, Simon Bolivar when we were first fighting for independence. And um, and we also kind of like earlier today, we were talking about um, just the importance of like the indigenous movement there now. And we dive um, pretty far into it in our episode on the indigenous formulation of the communist movement in Colombia, uh, our second episode on the podcast. And so just encouraging y'all to like, listen to those. If you're looking, if you're looking for more information mm-hmm. and then also the, um, our socials. Yeah. Just at red condor collective, I think it's at red condors on Twitter and, um, yeah, us and a lot of the organizations that we're working with, we all, we can all be kind of connected through uh, on those pages. Dope, dope. All right. We're going to conclude it there. I'm going to go ahead and press pause, but thank you again. And um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I know some of y'all here today because y'all think jail is cool. But see, y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. I ain't cool about jail, nigga. I've been here 10 years and I ain't never getting out. I ain't do much, just kill somebody. It ain't like the nigga ain't have it coming. He sure did. See, y'all think it's just about us in here, but this is about an oppressive. System designed to keep niggas down and y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. What about you, little nigga? You know about that? Yes. Oh, you know about that? Tell me what you know about that. Tell me what you think about that. The prison industrial complex is a system situated at the intersection of government and private interests. It uses prisons as a solution to social, political, and economic problems. It includes human rights violations, the death penalty, slave labor, policing, courts, the media, political prisoners, and the elimination of dissent. Nigga, did you just say what I was trying to say, but smarter? 